Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. What if, in the 1960s, you were sadistically tortured for your political beliefs and the man responsible for that is now your neighbor? What about the bloody civil war in Spain from 1936 to 1939 that was followed by the dictatorship of Ferdinand Franco that ended only with his death in 1975, after which a law was granted for crimes committed, an amnesty law was, was put in place to essentially wipe the slate clean of all the crimes that were committed against thousands upon thousands of people. That is the backstory behind this remarkable documentary called The Silence of Others. It is about, it's about reconciliation, it's about accountability, it's about history, it's about man's inhumanity to man. And it is a fantastic documentary. And with that, I'd like to introduce to uh, our audience the, uh, the co-directors of this film, The Silence of Others, and that would be Almadina Caracido as well as Robert Behar. To both of you, welcome to Film School. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. You're so welcome. Almadena, tell me a little bit about where the impetus for this documentary came from. Right. Yes, I'm, I was born and raised in Spain. I, I came to the U.S. a few years ago. And, the, um, and to be honest, this is something that as we were in university, we, we never even thought that there was this issue. Like We never organized or, or even discussed it, right? And so as I left the country, I started making films about other parts of the world, other sort of plights for dignity. Um, suddenly there was a growing pain inside me about these issues that had not been addressed. And certainly I had not addressed them as a filmmaker. And so, so that, that pain is sort of the seed of, of the project. And then so specifically in 2010, the stories of the stolen children in Spain started coming out in the media. Um, and we had had our daughter that year, so we, we were very we were new parents, very sensitized with the issue. I think that was the moment when we decided that this was going to be our next film. Mm -hmm. Robert, what was the sort of the first step in terms of uh, getting in touch with uh, any particular people that we see in the film? Sort of what was it that got you kind of off the ground in terms of putting this project together? Well, as Almodina said, we started off investigating the cases of stolen children in Spain. So mm -hmm. we started following certain characters, and gradually we saw that some of the people who were victims of crimes that had taken place under dictatorship were joining this bigger lawsuit that's known as the Argentine lawsuit because it's filed under this principle called universal jurisdiction in Argentina to prosecute outside Spain the crimes that cannot be prosecuted inside. And as filmmakers, we thought that this would give us a present-day story where we could follow a drama that would unfold, that would have twists and turns, where people would really be um, going through a long and meaningful process that could be a structure for a film. And so we talked to two of the lawyers leading the case and talked to Chato and talked to some of the other people who were involved as organizers and started filming, and we thought that that process might um, 
be a year or two of filming, and we ended up following that lawsuit for six years mm-hmm. and recording about 450 hours of footage. Almadena, what Robert just referred to is a sort of different prongs to the documentary, different different stories to be told. And it is a film right. that while there are a, a fair amount of moving parts to the tracking of the the arc of the story, it is done beautifully. And it, Robert just mentioned that, in fact, within Spain, the idea of redress for what happened was put to rest with this amnesty law. And, and we find ourselves in Argentina. And I'm sure along the way, this is where you probably, this is probably a fork in the road for you as filmmakers to essentially continue to pursue this story. But tell us a little bit about the sort of what happened in, in Argentina, why, why that became such an important part of the telling of the story. Right. So as, as you mentioned, uh, with the amnesty law, um, we hope for prosecution of those who, of the perpetrators of crimes uh, on the Franco side had kind of had been lost. Um, there was a point where, you know, Spain, which was a pioneer in the application of universal jurisdiction, um, which is a principle that says that if a country refuses to prosecute, any other country in the world can do so. So Spain became a pioneer. People might remember, like, the, the detention order for Pinochet. He was 500 days in London. Um, so the, all of this came from the courts in Spain. Now, when Spain, when the same judge, Garzón, decided to investigate the crimes of Spain, he was put on trial. He was disbarred uh, for an unrelated cause, but in what everyone believed to be a political punishment. And so at that moment, when the door of justice closes forever in Spain, is when the, the, the plaintiffs, I mean, the victims and survivors become plaintiffs um, in Argentina. And so it is now from Argentina that a judge is trying all these um, crimes in Spain. As you say, there are many, you know, there are so many different crimes. The film is able to cover a few of them, but it is sort of, even though they are characters, right, it is kind of a collective a struggle of all those people uh, sort of coming together in a movement that starts as a very small sort of movement in someone's kitchen, becoming a huge international lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would just add the experience of going to Argentina for a lot of the plaintiffs really was just this powerful experience of being able to speak to a judge for the first time to testify about crimes that had been perpetrated either against themselves or against their families, for the first time, no judge would hear that in Spain. And so emotionally, it's a very central place in the film um, because that's really the experience that some of the protagonists have been fighting for for 80 years. Right. I think we need to take a half a step back here and explain for our audience the 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 rule of Ferdinand Franco and how it how sort of a quick history lesson as to the Spanish Civil War, but and and even after the war when he was well, I don't want to I'm I'm stepping on the story, but tell us a little bit about Ferdinand Franco. Right. So um, when Franco um, uh, won uh, the Spanish Civil War in 1939. Um, there started um, um, a 40-year dictatorship, um, basically. 
uh, with obviously all sorts of lacks of lack of freedom. You know, um, there was no freedom of the press, no freedom of assembly. It was a very sort of like uh, socially very strict moral Catholic code. So you couldn't kiss your girlfriend in the street. Like women cannot can wear miniskirts and, and this kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for a long time, and all of these things. Sort of like were challenged, obviously in May '68, when uh, the students, like in Spain as well, kind of rebelled and 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 the protests basically started that led um, to you know the end of the regime. Although very important to remember that Franco died in power in 1975, you know, and so it was a brutal kind of authoritarian regime. Uh, Franco won the war with the help of Hitler and Mussolini, so you know for a long time it was like a neo-fascist kind of regime. Um, and and that was kind of those were the crimes the crimes in the film were committed in the context of this of this sort of like war and post war on civilians. It's very important. All the cases in the film we're talking about civilian population, um, and I think something very important for for everyone, right, is that um, these people for a long time until now didn't even have the right to be call, to call themselves victims. Uh, there has been no uh, apology from the government or from the state of Spain, no uh, even acknowledgement of what happened. And so it is basically civil society the one that has been bringing this issue to the public's attention. And obviously the film, you know, comes at a very important time right now to bring all these issues out um, into the public in Spain and elsewhere, obviously. Right. And, and I would just add, I think, you know, I'm from the United States, and really my education here, I had learned about the Spanish Civil War as a prelude to World War II, as a rehearsal of sort of fascist tactics and um, maneuvers. And so a lot of the time when someone would mention to me, oh, crimes of Franco, I would think back to crimes that took place during the Spanish Civil War. And so it's important to look at the crimes that took place in the film to understand the span of time that we're talking about. This was a 40-year dictatorship, and so some of the crimes we look at occurred during or at the end of the Spanish Civil War, and these were often extrajudicial killings, and there are bodies that are still buried, more than they think, more than 114,000 bodies are still buried in mass graves across Spain. But then there are crimes like the stealing of children, often telling mothers when they gave birth that their child had died and then giving that child to a family that's loyal to the regime. Those crimes started in the 1940s, but they continued into the 50s and 60s and 70s. And the case that we show in the film is a case that took place in 1981 where you see the machinery of the dictatorship continuing even when Spain had become a democracy. The other kind of crime that we see is torture. So students, activists, people who were 18 or 20 years old in 1968 were organizing against the dictatorship. They were making pamphlets. They were fighting against the um, dictatorship. And they were taken by the a special brigade of the police force, and tortured. And so we're not talking about crimes that took place 80 or 90 years ago only. We're also talking talking about crimes that took place in the 1970s and even 1980s, where the victims are not that old and the perpetrators are not that old. 
Thank you for that. And it, why it's relevant today, because well, I'm just exactly. it, it, all of these things are so relevant. And I'm just going to say I'm old enough to remember when Franco was the was in power. And I remember thinking, well, he's a dictator. Why are wh- he's in the United States? He was sort of portrayed as sort of this sort of benign old man who was basically <laughs> harmless. I mean, that's my recollection. Right. I'm again, I'm old enough to have re- remembered these things, to have been conscious, politically conscious of things, and railing about the, you know U.S. policy in Vietnam and all these different things that were going on around the world. And when it came right. to Spain, it was this sort of well, you know, he's just a, he's our guy. And uh, again, this is this sort of a uh, look the other way. You know, it didn't happen. I I had no idea about this law until I saw this amnesty law that went into place, which essentially made any kind of uh, attempted real reconciliation impossible and how many institutional barriers were put in front of these people it's infuriating and and in we see it in the film and we understand i can completely understand the the anger of the people involved who were trying to seek some measure of justice i just have it, it, it's really fascinating to hear your comments about the u.s perspective during the franco dictatorship and if you look at what happened Coming out of World War II, there was an association of Franco and his regime with the fascists. But over just a few years, I think in the early 50s, Spain was accepted into the United Nations, and everything moved from a fight against fascism to the Cold War. And at that point, the United States uh, needed military bases, and Spain was a great location, and they wanted to build military bases there. And, and they did, and that's part of, you know, as the whole 20th century moves to that Cold War position, Franco becomes sort of accepted as an ally, and people look the other way to what they kind of knew might be happening. I want to remind our listeners that we are talking about the documentary, The Silence of Others, and we're speaking with Almadena Caracito and Robert Bahar, the co-director of the film, uh, The Silence of Others. And I w- you, you mentioned it, Almadena, you had mentioned the, uh, the kidnapping of children, literally f- as they were being birthed uh, and being handed off to other more politically aligned families and into God knows what else, what other situations they were put in. Uh, this is new. This was a part of the story that I was not familiar with, um, and it is shocking. And, but also more shocking is it's not an unfamiliar tactic that apparently the Nazis, Nazi Germany, was doing this as well. And it continues in some manner of speaking in other parts of the world. Is that? Am I wrong right. about that? No, no, you're completely right. This is a very, unfortunately, typical tactic. We've seen this in Argentina. People are mostly familiar with the Madres de Plaza de Mayo, and the abuela, the grandmothers of Casa de Mayo, right? Um, I think what is so absolutely shocking in the Spanish case is the sheer number, right? Um, in Argentina, we're talking about 500 disappeared children. In Spain, we're talking about a number that's completely unknown that goes from 30,000 to, <laughs> unfortunately, probably hundreds of thousands. Oh, my God. And so... Um, that's, that's, I think, what's most shocking. It's, it's, it's the same with the political disappeared. Like we're talking in Spain about 114,000 people who are still disappeared in mass graves all over Spain. And so when people hear these numbers, it is really hard to imagine this sort of in a Western European democracy, right? 
Um, but it, unfortunately, it is, it's completely true. It's something that our country has to deal with. And in a way, I think what's, what's, what's powerful, you know, if I may say so about the film, is that it really puts a mirror to other societies to think about what are those goals, you know, about our own society that we haven't been looking at. Like, I remember in Spain protesting in the streets against, you know, like in support of Madres de Plaza de Mayo, you know, for those 500 disappeared when we had so many and we didn't even know. And so likewise, how can this film help us see what happens in other countries or other processes of, like, lack, you know, a progressive lack of freedom of, you know, other issues. Uh, and so it's not hard to link the stories of the of the stolen children to, you know, children who are taken away at the border right now, for example, right? Yeah. So very important to always remember that these stories, even though they are in the past and in the present, obviously, because the victims are fighting right now and it's a film told in present, um, but that they do resemble, unfortunately, a lot of other processes going on in the world. Right. And thank you for bringing that part up because I want to you did a wonderful job of personalizing what happened. And this is one of the things that you just touched on a little bit. And I want to talk about, well, he's referred to in the film as Chato. It's Jose Maria Galiante and his story as well as uh, Maria Martin or Martin. Am I got that? Martin. Those two stories are... And others, but certainly those are sort of they bookend the uh, the the effect the torture itself that was perpetrated on them by Billy the Kid, uh, one of the most renowned of the tortures in Franco's regime, and then also Maria Martin and her story is is sort of a a haunting refrain in this film. We open with her and the statues as, that it, in tribute to the to the people who, who lost their lives under Franco, but it, she, those two stories are just uh, so compelling. Um, tell us a little bit about how you met Maria. So Maria had um, been one of those people who testified um, in the trial against against Garcon, the, the judge that started to open the case in Spain, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, she testified in his favor in the trial against him. Uh, and that's how we met her. We were absolutely sort of taken by her personality and that voice of hers that basically traverses the film. You know, we started sort of following her. Obviously, what we didn't know because, you know, when you start these films, you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> right. So you, you film without knowing what the story is going to go through, right? And so, you know, obviously we didn't know she was going to, I'm kind of giving this away, but she was going to leave us, you yeah. know, during the, the making of the film. Um, and in a way, sort of symbolizing those thousands and thousands of people who are fighting their entire lives for something so absolutely basic, which is, to bury your loved ones in a dignified way, right? Something that, that is just such a human right. And this is, it, it's beautiful that you mention it because we try to tell the story through the voices, through the experiences of the victims and survivors. This is a very politically charged issue. Um, it's, it's deeply political, obviously, but it's essentially a human rights issue, right? To bury your loved ones is not a matter of who you vote for. It's a human right, uh, you know, period. And so um, it was very important to tell the story through 
their experiences. And Maria becomes this one character who obviously symbolizes so much more than herself. And that's the power of her as a character and the power of her as a woman, as an extraordinary woman. She is such a determined, she is so forceful, she is so aggrieved. It just pours out of her. It's just raw emotion, and and that's she just wants, she wants something as basic as as any human being could want, which is to be able to recognize the, the passing of her father, to be able to in some way bring closure to his life, and it's it's really a very very powerful part of this film. Right. Um, Robert, you. did you want to talk about uh, Chato for us? As his experience. Well, Chateau is one of the organizers of the Argentine lawsuit. And Chateau has, for decades, been an activist and an organizer. And he was one of those students who, as a, a young man in 1968 and those years, he was organizing against the dictatorship. And he and many of the other activists like him in the film, we also meet a, a woman uh, named Kuchi. Um, they were targeted by a special police brigade that really focused on anyone challenging the dictatorship. And they were taken to this building called the um, General Security Headquarters, Dejeese in Spanish, and they were tortured. And activists knew that this was the place that you would be taken and you would be tortured. And in the film, Chateau, there's a very powerful scene, which I won't give away, but where Chateau speaks about what his experience was like and how you try to hold on to your humanity in the moment that you are being tortured. And so Chateau... um, in the years after the, the, the dictatorship, was involved in the ecology movement and environmental activism. And around the year 2000 and more recently, slowly many people started to come back to the fact that Billy the Kid and other torturers like him were still out there and that these perpetrators and these crimes needed to be addressed. His is a powerful story, and uh, one of the places that we find you he, you follow him into a place of unspeakable horror for him in his past. Uh, it's, it's a, it, I can't imagine what that was like for, not only for him, but for you as, as filmmakers to walk into one of these places with him. Uh, I mean, if you want to share any of your thoughts when you were in, and I don't know if I want to give away where it is, or you can if you want, but that was a very, very powerful part of this film, and I can only imagine the emotions must have run very deep during that part of your experience as well. Well, there's a scene in the film where Chateau goes back to one of the jails where he was imprisoned for a long time. And when you go with someone to a place that is so connected to their past, and the past of the country that they're trying to help write, um, it is a very powerful experience. And so as filmmakers, I think we're, part of what we're trying to do is convey sort of the transcendent humanity of what happened. And so on the one hand, we're in this very powerful space and we're trying to work with Chato and you know, support Chato and respect his experience and 
in a sense, let him take the lead, but then we're also, as filmmakers, thinking about how we create an experience that ultimately will work on screen so that Chapter's experience can be communicated to the millions of people who couldn't be there that day. Yeah. It's a remarkable film. My congratulations to you both for the work here and continue to uh, follow for people who are interested in following the film. Uh, they can go to thesilenceofothers.com. That's the website uh, for the film, The Silence of Others. And you have a very busy schedule ahead of you. I'm looking at the upcoming screenings here in the United States, it, and you'll be opening here in Los Angeles on May 24th at the Lemley Theater, um, which uh, which is the Lemley. You're opening at the Music Hall here in Los Angeles. Again, I'm sure you'll be... Are you coming out for any Q&As, uh, either one of you, for the L.A. opening? Yeah, so I'll be there on Friday and Saturday night of the L.A. opening. And, uh, yeah, I think it should be great Q&As. I hope uh, lots of people come out. I urge people to seek this out, to make this part of your... Uh, your film, um, your film plans. It is called The Silence of Others, and we've been honored to have with us today the direct, the co-directors of the film, Almadena Caracito, as well as Robert Bahar. Thank you so thank, much for being thank here. You so thank much. you so much. We really appreciate it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.